Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946 with my wonderful guest and brother, David Greenfield. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, I have my brother, David Greenfield. Hi. This week, we watched the movie, I almost said the TV show. It is not a TV show. We watched the film, The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946. David, what did you think? It was really good. For being a movie that was like almost three hours long, it flies by. I was shocked. So I actually have to confess, one of the reasons I wanted you to watch this with me is because I knew you would. I was scared to ask people that were maybe not members of my family to watch an almost three hour long film. Um, But that being said, this is one of my favorite movies of all time ever, period. Which is unusual, I would say, for me, because it's not, I guess, my normal kind of film. But there's something about this movie that it shows realism, but at the same time, it shows heart. And I really like both of those aspects together. And at times, especially watching as a modern audience, it can be a little corny. You know, the styles aren't the same. Like the acting styles are different now than how they would have been in the past. But I still think you get so much heart from this film and such a beautiful story, such an important story. Like this was made in 1946 and it's still shown for vets dealing with PTSD and like, you know, getting back into civilian life today that it's still relevant. So I really love this movie. That was one of the things that that I actually um, was thinking about when I was watching this was how absolutely real it, it felt and how you can see, you know, when these actors are, when these soldiers are coming home, uh, just how they're trying to acclimate in their society and uh, trying to come back to their lives. And you could see how difficult it was and how each person kind of had their own way of dealing with it. So I'm going to jump right in with the plot synopsis. This film, as David had touched on, is about three servicemen from three different branches of the armed service. So we've got one that was from the Navy, one that was from the Army, and one that was from the Air Force. We have three different economic backgrounds, uh, one who is poor, and they literally show his home on the wrong side, the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks. And I was like, they're getting literal with this one. Um, So we have one who's um, from a more poor background, one who's from a middle-class background, and one that's from a more wealthy background. Um, All of them are white, I should mention. There is not really a lot of representation of people of color in this film, and we'll we'll get to that, because there's actually an important scene I do want to talk about um, later on. But, uh, so we have three different uh, backgrounds. They have three different ranks. There's a sailor, a sergeant, and a captain. 
And what I think is really cool is by giving us all of that in these three men, they can encompass so many men that were coming home at the time. Like you could find each yourself in each one, or you could find someone that you could relate to in those three men. Um, and then they show the course of their lives over a few months with how they're dealing with going home, with how they're dealing with work, with how they're dealing at nighttime, um, with how they're dealing in their relationships and love lives. And it's just a really beautiful film. So as David had mentioned, this is a very long film, but it does not feel long. I swear, don't get intimidated by the runtime. It's gonna fly by. Everything that needs to be there is there. This was directed by a master, William Wyler. You're gonna enjoy it. You're not gonna be checking your watch, I promise. Actually, one of the things I really want to talk about with this film, you had mentioned earlier, you said, well, these actors, technically, one of the men is not an actor. Uh, the three men that are coming back, two of them are actors. Uh, Dana Andrews plays Fred, who's kind of the economically poor one who ranked the highest in the army. He worked up to being a captain and was held in high regard. Or not, He's not in the army. He's in the Air Force. And then when he comes back home, people just treat him like dirt, essentially. And... Uh, Frederick March uh, is the other actor. He won Best Actor for his performance as Al Stevenson, uh, the guy that works at the bank and has the cushy job and the nice townhouse and is married to Myrna Loy. And then the third man, they actually originally what they wanted to do was when they were developing this piece, they had thought of that role as being the role dealing with PTSD and shell shock. And then um, William Wyler, he saw a documentary called Diary of a Sergeant. And in the documentary, he saw this man, Harold Russell, who ends up being the guy in the film. Harold Russell lost both of his arms, um, not actually in combat, but um, he was an instructor at a school, at like an army school. And there was a defective fuse on the TNT he was handling and it exploded in his hands and he lost both of his hands. And it was really, you know, incredibly tragic. And he ended up in the army hospital learning how to use these hooks as his hands and he uses them really well. Um, he like masters using them. And he ends up being in this documentary film that William Wyler sees and William Wyler's like, oh my God, that's the person. That's the person we were writing. That man has to be in my film. So they changed the whole role for him. And um, Harold Russell ends up being in this film. He really is a disabled vet. Um, those really are hooks that he's using. Um, this was his first acting performance ever. He did not want to do it. And William Wyler ended up talking him into it. And he ends up winning two Academy Awards for the same performance. It is the first time in history and the only time in history that that has ever happened, where one person wins two awards for the same role. And the reason that he won two awards is because the Academy was worried that he was not going to win for a competitive category. And they wanted to make sure that he got some sort of honorary award because his performance was so moving and really helped veterans see themselves on screen. So they made a special honorary award for him. And then later in the night, he ends up winning competitively in the category of best supporting actor. So, yeah, uh, Harold Russell ends up winning twice. That's really cool. I, You know, what's actually really funny is... One of the questions that I had for you was how did they film the scenes when they like take off the hooks mm -hmm. and you can see his, like, you can see he's obviously got, you know, I don't know, his arm only comes down a little bit past his elbow. Um, and I was going to ask you how they filmed something like that. I didn't, I didn't realize that was actually real and legit. Yeah, that was real. Cause it's not yeah. like they had like green screen effects and stuff that they could do. So I was trying to wonder what it was. That's really, that's really cool. That's all real. And I think what's so special about it, too, is it's one of the first times in the history of cinema that we have a real 
disabled person. I'm sorry. If there's a better word for that, I'm so sorry. Please let me know. Um, but it was the first time disabled people had seen themselves in a positive role that was one of the leading roles in the film. He's a big part of this movie. He's one third of the story. And it's all about his hopes and dreams and fears. And it does a really good job of not pitying him, not disparaging him, showing the pain he feels, but also like the hope and the optimism he feels too. So I think it was really meaningful for a lot of people who had been changed by the war to see this character and to have this hope. Let's just dive into Harold Russell in general. First of all, the man, what a strong Boston accent, if ever I heard oh, one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're supposed to be in, like, Ohio or something. Yeah. And he's like, I got to pack the car and hop a yacht. And you're like, oh, my God. You're from he Boston. Mo- he moved to Ohio when he was 16, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we got a strong Massachusetts accent up in there. And um, I explained his real life story. I think the way they explain it in the film was they make him a Navy man and he his arms are burned off and the rest of his, he, he like jumps in the water or something and his arms are burned off. I didn't, they were using Navy jargon. I did not yeah. understand the Navy jargon. Another interesting thing about him actually is, so we had mentioned he's the first person to win two Academy Awards for the same role. He's also the first person to sell an Academy Award at auction. Um, he sold his best supporting actor Academy Award because he needed the money. Because, and I mean, he's like not he had two. an actor. He had two. He <laughs> kept the other one, but people really harshly judged him for this. And I, I get it, but also I'm like, he, I looked it up, or I didn't look it up, but it said on the page that he was paid $10,000 for this role, never made any residuals, and this was one of the biggest hits ever of all time. So to like get paid a flat fee for your role that, of a movie where you're basically like the heart and soul of the film, I don't know. I, I well, I'm sure it. they knew they could do it because. He wasn't an actor and they could just bring him in, get him. And it's really too bad, though. He didn't want to be in it because he felt like he would be so bad at acting. Um, William Wyler really had to convince him, no, you will be great in this. You've lived this. I'm tailoring this to you. I believe in you. You can do this. William Wyler really talked him into it. Did he do other stuff? So this was pretty much the big thing. So the reason he was in that documentary was after um, he had lost his hands, they asked him, do you want us to give you like beautiful fake plastic hands? And he was like, no, that's not functional. I don't want that at all. So he was kind of one of the first people to get this new kind of invention that was the hook. And he was really interested in it because he said, it's so functional. I want to learn this. And I guess he mastered how to use them in six weeks and was just working so hard at it. And it was so important to him. He ends up going to school, Boston University, and it's during that time when he's in school that they shoot this documentary um, about vets and how they're like rehabilitating in their lives. That was how William Wyler saw him. After this movie comes out, he goes back to Boston University, gets a degree in business. He became active in a group called AmVets. So he was very much um, a part of a group that was about like veterans and veterans' rights for a long time. That ends up being his career. And he does do two movies way later on. Um, they're like not a big deal or anything. And he he's in a TV show once. He writes two autobiographies. One of them is called Victory in My Hands. But yeah, this is kind of his big moment. This is, you know, the big thing for him. I mean, I'll say I thought he did a really nice job. I didn't know he wasn't an actor. So I guess that's a compliment. Yeah. William Wyler, the director, said it's one of his favorite performances of all time. Oh, wow. What else did William Wyler do? William Wyler, it is hilarious to me that I have had this show for almost a year and have not done a William Wyler film because he is one of my favorite directors. This is one of my favorite films. William Wyler is one of the great directors of his generation. 
it's funny because he actually doesn't have like a defining style. What he is known for is getting really great performances out of actors. He's known for a lot of takes, getting a lot of takes. He's that guy. He's that guy. <laughs> and he's known for being a perfectionist. And he has a, a track record of actors getting Oscars and of especially taking first time actors to the screen, like Audrey Hepburn, like Barbara Streisand, and getting them Academy Awards and making them like, you know, big. He directed all of them? So yeah, he some of his films that he's directed. So in the earlier years, it's he works with Betty Davis a lot. Jezebel, they also, I guess, dated for a little bit. Oh, Jezebel, uh, <laughs> The Little Foxes, Wuthering Heights, Mrs. Miniver. He's won the Best Director Oscar three times. And each of his pictures he won the Best Director Oscar for also won Best Picture. Mrs. Miniver was one of them. So we got Mrs. Miniver, um, The Best Years of Our Lives, The Heiress, Roman Holiday, The Children's Hour, Ben-Hur. Oh, that's a big <laughs> you one. You know, a little film. Just a little film. Just a little one. And Funny Girl. And he's directed way more than that. Those are just the ones I compiled for this list. That's a big list. I mean, Ben-Hur right there is like, that's And a it classic. spans time. He had like 20 years of an almost perfect record of just really great films. So William Wyler is a Swiss German, grew up in Germany, I think. Ooh, I didn't write this down, but I think so. His dad being Swiss was what saved him from everything ever. Like he did not have to endure anything with the Holocaust because he had Swiss citizenship because of his dad. Did he live there when, when during the war? So he comes to, he's born in 1902. So I feel like in the 20s, that's when he comes to New York. And it's actually really funny. The reason he comes to New York with a Swiss passport, by the way, and he, oh, and I should mention he's Jewish. So Swiss, German, Jewish. So I feel like if he had been around during the Holocaust, we would not have had this. So he's, he's related on his mother's side to this guy, Carl Lemley. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. We know him on the West Coast because there's the Lemley movie chain. But Carl Lemley, I think he was the founder of Universal Pictures. No big deal. Just the founder. So uh, that's uh, William Wyler's cousin. <laughs> so he goes to New York and he, because they had, you know, a pictures office in New York and works as a messenger for Universal Studios for a few years and then uh, joins the New York Army National Guard and is like, you know what? I want to be a director in Hollywood. So he goes to Hollywood and that's what he does. And again, I don't want to undercut his talent and undercut what it must have felt like being an immigrant, not speaking a lot of English, all of this. But I mean, it's easier to get into the business when your cousin is the head of the business. Yeah, just gonna say it. Um, but yeah, he moves out to Hollywood, kind of comes up doing silent film westerns, doesn't totally love working at Universal, ends up switching to work with Samuel Goldwyn of MGM. He works with Samuel Goldwyn a lot, and that's when he makes like all of the big pictures, all of his best pictures. There's this documentary on Netflix called Five Came Back, and it's about the five directors who enlisted in the army during World War II and worked with the Air Force to like shoot what was happening over there. And they made really important films that we have to this day. Um, and the five of them, I think it was, it's like William Wyler, John Huston, John Ford, Frank Capra, and who's the other one? George Stevens. I feel like Frank Capra was, we had talked about, because that last one I did was uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But they do this. All these five directors go over there. It changes their lives and how they make film, because they really see, they, they are like in on the action. 
they're seeing combat zones, they're seeing atrocities, and it deeply affects their work. So yeah, we totally talked about this for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You're also my patriotic go-to, I think. I was like, not only is this three hours, but it's patriotic. And the 4th of July is coming up. So, so where's, my, where's my American flag? I need them. That's kind of where the impetus of this film is. Like, William Wyler comes back, you know, after World War II. Samuel Goldwyn had been thinking of making a movie like this since 44, when he read an article in Time magazine about how hard it was for servicemen to adjust to being civilians. And um, that's where kind of his idea came from. And he read a novella by this dude named McKinley Cantor. And um, then Robert E. Sherwood turned it into a screenplay. And fun fact about Robert E. Sherwood, he was a World War I vet who was injured in combat, injured in war. Um, so he's like a very good person to be writing this screenplay or adapting it. And he also wrote uh, the screenplay for Rebecca, which won Best Picture, the Hitchcock film. And he wrote Petrified Forest and The Bishop's Wife. Those are some of his films. But yeah, the screenplay is excellent, the way it ties everything in. I think it takes talent to turn a movie of this type of length and make it feel like you're just watching people kind of living their lives and it's just entertaining for the entire time. But the, you're right, the fact that he could weave everything together, he's got three distinct storylines. I thought it was really well put together. Oh yeah, like really well done. One way William Wyler made this feel more like real was he used real life-size sets. So normally when you make a film set, you make it larger. It's like not to scale. You want it to maybe either feel grander or have space for the cameras. And he said, no, I don't want that. I want this to be a townhouse. I want this to be a house. I want us to feel like we're really in this space with them. Greg Toland is his cinematographer, and he works with William Wyler on a bunch of pictures. I think they do like six pictures together. You may know him from Wuthering Heights and, I don't know, Citizen Kane. Oh, um, a little movie. You know. Greg Tolan would shoot in deep focus. So what that means is you get crystal clear someone in the foreground and then also crystal clear someone in the back. So you get a lot of depth. And a lot of the ways William Wyler tells the story is you're seeing what's going on both from the front and the back. So like someone will be telling you something in the foreground, but you'll be able to see someone's reaction or face in the background. And that will be just as important as what's happening in the foreground. So that's really cool and really special. I think the other thing that makes it feel really natural too is the way they stage things. They tend to do a lot of really long takes and they do a lot of like someone will be in profile and someone might be facing the camera um, or they might be in profile too, but it's not about getting a lot of like over-the-shoulder reaction shots. There are not a lot of close-ups in this picture. Like, there are some, but not a lot. To speak of that, I actually did notice more at the beginning of the movie when the, the soldiers are coming home. I think it was um, Frederick March's character, um, Al. When he comes home, I think, like, everybody comes home and they they see the the people that they love, except for one character, but we can get to that. But, like, he comes home and, and they do the close-ups of both of his kids and how happy they are to, to see their dad. But even after all that happens, you can, it's like those close-ups happen at the beginning and you're right, they kind of don't happen again when you start to realize that the people aren't the same as when they when they left versus when they come home. And I feel like they want to show that happiness at the beginning until you realize that like something isn't quite right. Well, and that shot that you're talking about too, it ends up being one of the most gorgeous shots. We get close-ups of the kids, then we see their backs as he walks down a long hallway to see his wife. And the moment he has with his wife, who he hasn't seen in three years, we as the audience don't even really get to see. They're hugging in the background. And it's it's a gorgeous shot. <laughs> like a lot of the movie is shot that way. Just like really thoughtful, really beautifully done. Everything looks interesting. 
And it doesn't have to, but it does. <laughs> but it feels natural at the same time, too. It's not overly cinematic. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't something that felt like they just wanted to make it look grand for the theater or something. It was to show that after three years, things change a little bit. He's a different guy from the war and everything else. You can see coming home, the whole point is to make it seem like, you know, it's going to take some acclimating and it's going to take some time to, to really get comfortable in this environment that he hasn't been in in years. So like some of the symbols that I was noticing throughout the film, I noticed that like windows and mirrors were a big part of the film. We see a lot of people reflected back through mirrors through a lot of shots. And then it seems like they're constantly separated by windows. So like Fred, who is Dana Andrews, who is kind of he was the captain and he's come the farthest down the scales, you know, like he, he comes from a poor background, was a soda jerk before the war goes into the Air Force, becomes a captain, is so good at his job, says things like, I'm never going to be a soda jerk again. Like, I got my whole future ahead of me. He's newly married to, like, this gorgeous lady who's very shallow. But he comes home and he is like, I don't want to be a soda jerk. I don't want my job back. I really don't want it. And the very first scene where he's back, it's like he's separated by the glass. And then eventually... Well, I've noticed a lot of breaking glass, too. So eventually when he stands up for Homer at the end and he punches that guy that's basically like a freaking Nazi supporter, by the way, who was like, we were on the wrong side of the war. You lost your arms for nothing. What an <laughs> asshole. He punches him and breaks the glass. And Homer has his moment. Homer, as we know, has lost his hands and he's having a hard time. He's great around army people, it seems. He's really comfortable around people that kind of that are vets that understood what he's gone through and are treating him normally. But when he goes home, it's not so much that his family is treating him differently. He just doesn't know how to behave around them yet. Like it's they aren't comfortable with each other and he feels really pitied and embarrassed and judged. And so he has this moment where his I think it's probably his kid sister or it has to be his kid sister. She's kind of looking at him through a window with her buddies and giggling at him. And they might just be giggling at the fact that he's in there with his girlfriend, but he takes it as they're laughing at my hands. They're laughing at me. And he punches uh, with his hooks through the glass and it says, you want to see the freak? You want to see me? I cry. I don't think I've ever not cried at that moment. <laughs> but it's another example of like, there's this isolating barrier between the civilians and the, the veterans. And it's like the breaking through that barrier, the breaking through the glass. I hadn't thought about all the glass breaking, but now that you're mentioning it, I'm starting to remember all these different moments. It's funny, though, because even in that scene, I had the same impression you did that the kids were giggling that he was with his girlfriend or fiance. Was it fiance? I believe it was fiance. fiance. She's fiance. You're right. Fiance. Yeah. I was trying to remember where they were at. Um, but I, that's what I thought it was, because that's what the kids always do. Like, you know, they see the guy and the girl together, you know, and they're they're laughing at that. But obviously, I think he everything is so in his head that everybody's staring at my hooks and they're they're not looking at me. It's, I don't know what the right word is, but he's always re-internalizing it as it isn't about anything else other than my hooks because that's all he can think about well and that's why i do love that scene that he has with hoagie carmichael who plays i think i guess his uncle or his cousin butch he has an uncle slash cousin butch who owns a bar i thought it was just his friend i wasn't paying attention definitely his family member of some kind um but i was like i want to go to butch's butch's looks great i would totally go there butch plays the piano because and by the way to get someone actually playing the piano in an old-fashioned film is a huge get because they never actually play the piano. But this time, they really are. That is really somebody playing the piano. And it is the great Hoagie Carmichael. He's like a famous music person of the day. So, like, 
Picture John Legend now sitting at that bar playing the piano for you, right? It's like that same thing. Like we would have known who Hoagie Carmichael was and he really does play the piano and is a great composer and performer. By the way, did you like when they played Chopsticks? Loved it. So yeah, but the scene where he's first like leveling with Homer and he's like having a heart to heart with him. Homer's like, everyone's so embarrassed around their hands in front of me. And it's cool because Butch is showing him he's not embarrassed. He's literally playing the piano in front of him and like saying, you know, I think that maybe what you're feeling is totally normal, but also like give it time. And also it sounds like you're not really cool with them, whatever they do. Nothing they're doing is right because of how you're feeling. So I, yeah, I loved that he was showing him that he had like someone he could count on in this life, in this moment with the hands. And then in the end, he teaches him how to play the piano and they play the piano together and it's so nice and they're really playing. I, I enjoyed that moment, especially the whole scene in general where you've got other stuff happening in the background, but they just had this nice light moment as other stuff was going on. And Great deep focus moment where Fred is being forced to break up with Al's daughter, even though they're not really dating. That's a whole other storyline. So at the top of the film, these three men, the way they become friends is they did not know each other at all. The first person we see is Dana Andrews, who plays Fred. And this is going to get confusing because Frederick March plays Al. So there's two Freds at this point, but whatever. So... We see a beautiful airport and Dana Andrews is in his uniform and he walks in and he tries to get a ticket and the people are like, no, we're booked up. You can't get a damn ticket. They don't say it rude like that, but it's like, no, you can't just have it. Who do you think you are? You can't have a ticket. So already we see like the civilians have no interest in helping him. They don't care that he's a vet. They don't care that he's a captain. They don't care that he's won all these awards and medals on his chest. None of that matters here. What matters is the man with money that's behind him. So there's a rich man behind him who, you know, of course he has a ticket. I'll pay the extra for my extra baggage. Like, so we're already seeing this disparity. Um, the way he ends up flying home to Boone City, which apparently is supposed to be Cincinnati, Ohio, I read. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, he ends up getting a ride because of the servicemen. There's like a special service base airport nearby where all the servicemen are waiting. And they're kind of all clumped in together and it's very hodgepodge, nothing fancy like the airport. And they're all kind of hitching rides home wherever they can on whatever flights they can. And so these three men end up hitching a flight together. Um, and that's how they get to know each other. And that's how they all find out they're from the same town. Their stories end up intertwining. They all go to the nose of the airplane so they can see the bird's eye view of the town. And it looks idyllic and beautiful. And Homer's like, this is my first airplane ride ever. I was in the Navy. I'm the first person in my family that's ever been in a plane. They're flying over um, a base with all these abandoned airplanes from the war. And I think Dana Andrews' character at the top goes, those are going to be turned into scrap. Nobody wants those. They're scrap. So by the end of the movie, when he's gone through this whole journey of like finding out his wife is kind of terrible and not being able to get a job, losing his job, feeling like he has no skills and just so hopeless. He ends up going to that same um, airport base with all the empty planes, which have been scrapped by this point, most of them. And he climbs into the one of the planes and it's like the opposite of the beginning. So in the beginning, he has all this hope for his future and he's so optimistic. And in the end, he's sitting in this dirty, dusty, murky cockpit. You cannot see out of the 
the front, the nose of the plane. He's going over like life and how things were and how awful it was bombing people. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful moment and a full circle moment of like, he has lost all hope. His life isn't as perfect as we want to believe it is. And it starts to kind of unravel. And then you get to the point when it kind of hits rock bottom. And then for him to jump out of the plane and get his future and his start in the junk, the metaphor there is like, these scrap planes are like the veterans. Like, we're going to junk you. We don't have use for you anymore. Your skills don't translate. They aren't valid. That's literally what he was told. Yeah. And so when he's talking to the man who says, oh, these aren't scrap. These are going to be turned into houses. We're going to be doing a building project. Um, what are your skills? And he's like, well, I don't know that I have any, but you know what? I can learn. I learned how to be an Air Force person <laughs> so I can learn how to do this. Thank you, David. A pilot. I learned how to be a pilot. <laughs> I learned how to be a captain. I can do this. To me, that's the moment where he goes, they're not junk. I'm not junk. Wait, this is my chance. His character arc, I thought, was maybe the best of all the character arcs. At the beginning, I remember, you know, they're all taking the taxi ride to get to their different places. None of them want to get out of the taxi, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. They were saying on the plane ride, like, the way I felt nervous to go to war is the way I feel going home which is, I was equating to a little bit of the pandemic too. I was like, we were also scared when it started and now we're kind of also scared to go back at the same yeah. time. It's like, you don't know what to expect and things are going to be different and I get it. When um, Al was getting out of the, the, the taxi and he was like saying, well, maybe we'll drop you off first, you know, and the guy says, I outrank you. Well, because the guy had just done that to Homer, by the way. He's like, you're home, kid. We can't go to Butch's, you're home. So then he tries to pull that shit and <laughs> Fred is like, no, 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 no. After he does that, he had that bird's eye view of the world. He was going to come back and he wasn't going to go take his old job. And he was destined for bigger and better things. And, and then, you know, you see he finds out that his wife no longer lives in the same place. Big red flag. Just going to say that. If your wife moved and didn't tell you about it, that's a red flag. Especially when I think it was his mom was like, oh, well, you know, you wanna, we didn't want to bother you. I actually think that's his stepmom because he kept calling her Hortense. He calls his dad Pop. So I, I feel like it's his stepmother, but I also feel like they have a very good relationship. So I'm like, it could have just been your mom. Why? I don't know why you added this. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's a different background. Because I remember thinking when he first left that house, he was like saying goodbye to his dad and then he just kind of looks at maybe his stepmom was just like, bye. It was not very like, you know, affectionate. So actually it makes sense. But you can tell it's a good relationship. I think they just did it to show his background is different from the other two. The other two have like very solid rooted families and like homes. And he's kind of like, it's, they love each other, but it's not the same level of, you know, stability. So anyway, to watch him go from that, and then you've got him uh, when he when he's staying at the, uh, the Stevenson's house, and he's having his terrible nightmare that you know the the recurring nightmare that he keeps having, which is PTSD. Let's just say, like they call it shell shock back in the day. PTSD wasn't even like they didn't even have a word for it. But let's break down this love triangle. So we've got um, Teresa Wright who plays Peggy, who's the woman he ends up falling in love with, who is uh, Al Frederick March in the movie's daughter. Teresa Wright is an awesome actress. I really like her. I actually don't know a lot about these people in real life. I'm just going to be real with you. They could all be assholes. They could be monsters. I don't know. I'm so sorry. I don't know. But as an actress, I enjoy her. She's been in several movies that I really like. Um, she was in Shadow of a Doubt. She was in Mrs. Miniver, Pride of the Yankees. And David, she was in Somewhere in Time. Oh, wow. Whoa. That's the one that was filmed at Mackinac, right? Yes, yes, yes. When we were kids, we watched it. We watched it at Wheels In and we were both terrified at the part with the coin when it like pans out. We were like, oh my God, what's going on? Ah! 
That's a freaky scene. We were children. Young kids should be subjected. To pennies being zoomed out on. <laughs> anyway, so Teresa Wright, I really enjoy her performance in this. She's really strong. They kind of pit her against Virginia Mayo, but I'm going to be on the record and say, so Virginia Mayo is this woman that Fred is married to. They only knew each other for 20 days before they got married. She was kind of only into him because he's hot and he has a uniform. And he was only into her because she's hot. Like, let's be real. They were just attracted to each other. And so she doesn't even seem to really know him. And he doesn't know her either. They're trying to paint her as being terrible. But the thing is, I don't think she's a terrible person. She's straight up honest with him most of the time. You know what I mean? She doesn't really try to hide anything. They just have very different ideas about what they want. She wants to have fun and go out and have a good time. And she's shallow. And But there's, there's nothing against that. I would agree. I didn't think she was like a bad person by any means. I think it was just they weren't compatible. They got married probably way too quickly. And I'm sure they probably got married because he was going off to war. I don't know. They probably wanted to have sex. Like he's going to go off to war. They want to have sex. And you were not allowed to just have sex back then. You had to get married. So that's probably why they got married. And probably because they had this idea of each other too. You know, I, I wonder if maybe it's good that they were married because... Maybe he had something to live for and when he was fighting, you know, so maybe it was a good thing. And she's Virginia Mayo. The actress is like gorgeous. She's a pinup girl who is in a bunch of comedies and stuff. So I feel like her placement in this was like kind of perfect casting. But she plays her role really well. And yeah, I just wanted to point that out that I don't think she's actually a terrible person. I just think they're not right for each other. And I, I like that she valued her independence and that she's the one that asked for the divorce. She's like, no, you're not gonna tell me what to do. I wanna go out at night. I love my job. I want to go make out with this other dude over here. I'll tell you when I was watching it, I actually thought he was a bigger jerk than she was because there was a point when you know they didn't have any money because he told her she couldn't do her job anymore. And then he didn't have a job because I don't remember at that time if he had the job at the, uh, the, the drug, drug store, store. or not. He didn't, he just spent all of their savings and didn't tell her. And then he's going to cook and she's like, well, I've got some savings. We're going to go out. We're going to eat. And he grabs her and says, no, you're not going out. You're eating the food I cook for you, which was like beans. That was one of my modern lenses of like, that scene wasn't great for the treatment of women. That was a little bit intense and maybe slightly abusive. I remember I watched that. I was like, I understand where she's coming from because- I mean, she, you know, she should have told him she moved, obviously. But yeah, outside she of that... She's not great. I'm not saying she's like an excellent character. I'm just saying she's not a villain either. She's more complex than that. Yeah, she's definitely not a villain. And I, I actually, I mean, I enjoyed her to some extent because, you know, she does have kind of that fun personality and she wants to just have a good time. And you're right. He's not that kind of guy. Obviously, it was a mutual attraction to each other. And then I think you kind of realize at some point, you know, it needs to be more than, than just that. When she sees him in his civilian clothes and is repulsed, you know it's not going to work. She's like, I need you to put your uniform back on. That's Please put your uniform back on. That scene that she has with Teresa Wright in the bathroom when they're both being shot through the mirrors, which is so cool. I love that shot. Um, she, is, she does sound incredibly shallow. She's just like, trust me, honey. Love will come later. Marry for money. It's not worth it to be poor. I don't necessarily agree with her. I, but again, I, I like that they make her a little more complex than just like, she's the bad guy. But then we also have Teresa Wright who is, we talked about a little bit earlier, she plays Peggy. She really empathizes with Fred because she's been a nurse for the last two years. So she's really seen what a lot of servicemen have gone through in coming home. Um, so she knows how to handle it when he has PTSD, when he has that like night terror. She knows how to be there and how to handle it. And they seem to fall in love very quickly. I don't really know what their love is based on, if I'm being honest. 
Um, but it works. I, she she took care of him for one night and that was, he was drunk most of it anyways. And somehow that uh, that worked out. But we see her sense of humor when he keeps forgetting her name yeah. and the way she handles it. We like her because we're like, oh, she's so funny. She's just totally messing with him. And we get this and it's great. Yeah, I, we like her. I just wanted to bring up before I forgot, I thought Frederick March for playing like a very um, like dramatic type role. He was phenomenal from a comedic standpoint. There was multiple times when he did some stuff that I thought was hilarious. There was one time when he he wakes up and he takes his shoes and throws them out the window. I don't know what he was doing. Those were his army shoes. Oh, those are I, I couldn't tell. Yeah. I saw he opens the window, drops it. You wait like five seconds and you hear him crash on the ground. So that tells you they must be pretty high up. And his timing is great in that moment, too, because he is hung over as hell. He is not looking at anything. He blindly grasps the blinds, pulls them up, drops the shoes, waits for them to plop, and pulls the blinds back down in a very hungover manner. And then and then he finds himself in the shower with his clothes on, and it takes him a second to realize it. But the other scene that I thought was funny was I, he had the two glasses, and he was, he was going between the two glasses. And then he goes to drink, and he's drinking out of the one that doesn't have any water in it it was little things but i just i thought his comedic timing was really good there when he is dancing with myrna loy to roll out the barrels it cracks me up his face in that and the way he's like jostling her around and her reaction he's he's great in it but he actually won the best actor oscar for this performance which i think is interesting because i don't feel like he's the lead i feel like dana andrews is the lead so this movie was very contemporary in 1946 like all of this would have just happened to everybody you know and Frederick Marsh and Myrna Loy, they play the older married couple. And I say older, like they're in their early 40s. Like they're not old at all. But if you notice, she gets top billing. Myrna Loy does. And she does not have a lead role. And she gets top billing because she is the biggest movie star at the time in this film. Um, so watching this movie as an audience, we would have known Frederick March um, very well because he had been a movie star forever. He was a huge like leading man in the 30s. He was known for being able to do both heavy drama and very lighthearted comedy. Those were the two things he was he was excellent at and he could switch back and forth. So like, so David, you know him from Inherit the Wind. I know that we we saw that. We've seen that together. But he plays Matthew Harrison Brady. So he's not Spencer Tracy. He's the other guy. But that's when he's older. But he's in like, he's in a film called Nothing Sacred with Carol Lombard. That's a really silly comedy. And then he's in the original Star is Born playing, you know, Norman Maine. He already has this range and he's a huge movie star. So us going in, we know him. And we know Myrna Loy, and they're very comforting to us. There's a really cool scene where he's looking in the mirror at himself and then looking at an old photo of himself. And the reason that's so funny is because, like, that really is, like, an old picture of him as an actor, like, from the 30s. You know, like, that's, like, a headshot of him from the past. And us as the audience are in on the joke because we know him from that era, too. So he's like comparing his looks now to comparing his looks back then. And that's great. Like how often do actors ever do that? Have you ever seen an actor on film do that? Be like, look at this picture of me from the past when I was young and hot. Look at me now. Am I still young and hot? No, it's great. So I just wanted to put that out there that that's a really cool moment. And I'm so glad they put that in this piece. It adds to his comedic timing, but it's also like kind of a joke for the people at home who would have, who would have known that version of Frederick March. So his performance in this is awesome. Not just because he does the drama and the comedy so well, but because he's so natural. I think he's a great example of a natural actor in the past because some people are a little over the top, even in this film. Like, I'm just going to say it. I'm so sorry. The woman that plays Homer's girlfriend slash wife. Sometimes Homer is a little over the top, but I excuse him because he's not an actor. There's a lot of over the topness, but Frederick March really 
knows how to make a moment real in a way that maybe wasn't always done in that style back then, you know? He's really good at that. You could feel it even from the beginning. He just, he had a very natural way about him because he had a number of scenes, especially early on when everybody's, you know, they're trying to drink to, I don't know, forget or- I think it's to be comfortable. They're uncomfortable in their situations. When he's drunk and, you know, that's when he starts to get a little bit funnier and, you know, he's, you can see him a little bit more in that type of habitat, but he was never over the top. It always felt very natural, no matter what state he was in. He could be very dramatic and kind of very comedic all in the same movie and, and always feel very natural doing it. And even from one moment to the next, too. He's really good at recalibrating like that. Two important moments of him in this film. One of them is the scene where he reconnects with his wife for the first time. So not when they first see each other after the war, but he, he's kind of hiding from her. He's scared to be alone with her. Um, that's why he wants to go out. He's sitting by the fire with his wife and he has nothing to say and he doesn't know what to do. And he goes, we're going to go out. That's what we're going to do. Me, you and my daughter, we're all going to go out. We're going to go to every club in town. It's going to be great because he doesn't know how to connect with his wife. So when they're finally at Butch's and he puts on their song <laughs> and they get up to dance and they have this moment, they reconnect and you see it in his face and you see it in her face. And they're not even looking at each other. <laughs> that to me is a very beautiful, very tender moment. And then um, when he's giving the speech later on, so his whole um, arc ends up being, he comes back really cynical and he doesn't really know how to connect with his family. He's offered a job at his bank where kind of the gist of his job is going to be that he's going to have to say no to vets for loans. They give him a vice president of like loans to vets job and they're asking him to turn down most of the people because they don't have quote unquote collateral. And so he's taking risky bets on people and he's getting in trouble at work. And only, I guess only one, he took a ris one risky bet. But you see the toll it takes on him to have to say no to men that he does not think should be said no to. Because, I mean, that is a little bit ridiculous. We can only give you money if you already have something. And they're like, well, that's why I'm here. I don't have anything. I want to build something. How can I do that? Um, so he's trying to kind of invest in the future. And these civilian men who are running the company don't want to take any risks, but it's really hurting him emotionally. And so he gives a speech towards the end of the film at his like work event. And in the speech, he says, from now on, our bank is going to start taking risks on vets and we have a heart. We're not just corporate. We have a heart. And we get the sense that like his bank might fight him on it a lot, but he's going to really from this point forward, try to approach things with his heart and not just succumb to like the corporate nature or the cynical nature of everything. I also like, you know, when he kind of gets the the courage to do it really is from Homer because he wasn't going to give that guy a loan. And then Homer happened to be at the bank to pick up his, uh, I, I, I forgot what the money was for. I'm sure it was, it was some- No, it's that he gets money from the government because of his, because of his disability from combat. But, um, but he kind of sees that. And I think he sees Homer and Homer has a, you're right, around people who he feels comfortable around, Homer is much more optimistic and much more, he has kind of a happy demeanor about him. And and I think it kind of rubbed off on Al. And so that's when Al wanted to give him the loan. And I think that's when Al, you're right, then Al kind of gets this arc of wanting to do the right thing by by other veterans like himself. I thought that was a really nice moment. And let's go to Homer. Thank you for bringing him up again, because Homer is so interesting to me because they turn him into, he's such a mascot in this film. You know, they really just look at Homer. Homer's really doing it. He's got a great attitude. He's doing it right. But what I like about it is that they show us the flip side of that, too. So they do show, like, happy-go-lucky Homer, who is, you know, trying his best to just, like, 
look at the world in a good way and keep moving forward in his life. But then they show us his moments of embarrassment and doubt. And oftentimes those are private, you know, those are in the shed with his girlfriend. Those are with his parents. Those are with Hoagie Carmichael. But I like that they show us both sides, that you're allowed to struggle. You're you're allowed to have these fears, but you can still also like go out in the world and, and really try your best. <laughs> like yeah. he's so sweet and lovely. Although the scene where he drops the glass is heartbreaking. I don't know about you, but I go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. When when he's trying to please his family and they serve him, you know, juice in this glass and he can't get his hooks on the glass and he drops it. And it's just, your heart goes out to him so hard because he just wants to show them he's okay. And they're like not letting him. And he might not be okay. And that's okay too. It's okay to not be okay. Um, but I think it is important to also just note that just because somebody appears okay when they're out in public, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily okay or that they're, they could be different in private. And I think that's just something to be cognizant of in general. But um, the word actually I was also looking for with Homer was insecure. He's insecure about his hooks. His life before had been so much about his athletic abilities. They have on the wall, they have the pictures of his past and they have him looking at pictures of when he was playing basketball. And they've got a picture that is literally emphasizing his hands. He's got a football and he's about to throw it. And it's like his hands are so prominent. And so you see how much they meant to him. The scene that is so impactful as well is when he finally, so they show this twice. Um, and actually, let's break all of this down because I, I want to go through this. Um, how they show the parallels between these men are the different facets of things they go through. So like one facet is like, we're going home. What's our home life like? What's our entrance back into society like with our family? Like that's the first thing we see from each and we learn about them from each of those things. Then we see all of them at night. And Dana Andrews has um, PTSD. Frederick March <laughs> has a full-size bed with his wife. I was very happy for him because in the 40s, they would have had twin beds. So I said, way to go, you guys. Way and to just be. remember, if you keep him upright, he snores. Got to flip him on his side. So yeah, we see his little cute nighttime routine where his wife takes care of him and like tucks him in and it's very cute. And then we see Homer's nighttime routine and we see it twice. The first time, we don't see all of it because we're up close. So it, that's purposeful. They, they want us to know, you know, something else is coming. So to go to bed every night, someone has to put him to bed because they have to help him with his arms and they have to help button up his pajamas. And, you know, it's a whole system. And so towards the end of the film, when he's about to let the love of his life go, but he's like, Wilma, maybe it's best if you leave. Like, I don't want you to be stuck to me. I want you to be free. And she's like, dude, I love you. I'm not going to know if it's too hard to like take care of you unless we try. So he shows her how to like put him to bed. And as an audience, this is the first time we see like the vulnerable Homer. We get a full shot of what his arms look like. You know, they're bandaged up, but it's like we, we see where his arms stop. He's like, I can do this part by myself. I can take off the harness. I can put my pajama top on by myself, but I can't button my pajamas. And if the door were to shut in the night, He's like, I'm completely vulnerable. I'd be trapped in this room because I can't put my hands on. And it's, I think, such a a touching moment because, well, one, Wilma totally loves him and accepts him as he is and is like, you see her going, this is it? Like, I could do this. <laughs> like, right, babe. So you see her stepping into this role of like, oh, I'm your wife. Like, I, I love you and I can do this. But then you see him, like, there's a moment when she puts down his collar of his pajamas 
and they have a moment together and you see him going like, oh God, it actually would be really nice. It would be really nice to be married to her. Oh, why am I pushing this away? Oh, this feels, this is really nice. And and after that, when he goes to bed, you see a little tear run down his, his face. It was really sweet. I think it's like educational for the audience to see. That would have been something really impactful at the time when I imagine there were a lot of vets that were hurt in combat that could watch this movie and see a possible future for themselves, but also see someone going through what they were going through. Like representation matters. That's why we talk about like people of color in film and women in film, women people of color in film. It matters. We need to see these stories so that we know we are not alone in the world. It matters. So I think all of that's really important and really special. The part that I do remember too from the beginning was the men, um, when they drop Homer off, are watching his, his reunion with his family. So they see the family come up and they see them hug Homer and they see his girlfriend come up and hug him, but he doesn't hug her back. And I think, I don't remember which of them says it, but they're like, I think Dana Andrews, cause he's optimistic at that point. Yes, he says it. He goes, you know, they really taught him how to do everything in the Navy. They really taught him how to use those hooks. And then Al, who's being cynical is like, yeah, but they didn't teach him how to hold his girl and like stroke her hair. I wrote that quote down. He, he couldn't stroke her hair. And technically he could, he just, he didn't know how to yet. But that's Homer's journey, essentially, of like accepting himself and letting people in. And also, again, everything was shot through like car windows and rearview mirrors. And I just thought all of that was so interesting, like all the ways they found to separate them from society and to isolate them through how they shot things, I thought was the most brilliant camera work. I just think in general, especially with Homer, that he it's important to remember that everybody, whether you have any type of a disability or whatever it might be, everybody's got insecurities. Everybody's got things they think are wrong about them or imperfections. We all allow that to kind of hold us back. At least Homer in this movie kind of learned that it doesn't have to hold me back. And, you know, so there is somebody out there who does love me even despite, you know, what I think is is an imperfection. Well, and what's special too, I mean, he really does know how to use those hooks as hands. Like he really is excellent with those. And I love that they show us how not limited he is. Just all the things they can do, he can do, they're showing us constantly. Like it doesn't stop him from lighting a cigarette. It doesn't stop him from putting a wedding ring on his wife's finger. It doesn't stop him from so many things. You know, there's still so much to live for, so much to do. So I don't know. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Pouring a glass of milk. He pours a glass of milk and eats chicken. And he offered the chicken to her as well. Yeah, she didn't want it. He did. And then what I thought was so moving was when they were getting married. So spoiler alert, the movie ends with a wedding and it's Homer and Wilma's wedding. And when they're holding each other's hands, it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, you forget that he has, that those are hooks. You forget she's treating them like they're his hands. It's beautiful. Like yeah. she's just like looking in his eyes. He's finally getting what he wants, which is to be treated normally and to feel comfortable with who he is. And it's beautiful. And to be accepted by society. I also want to talk about the shot at the end of the movie, which is phenomenal. William Myler and Greg Tolander geniuses. So Homer's getting married. And in one shot, William Wyler in a home, just like a regular beautiful little wedding at home with the piano and the kids singing off key and it's great. <laughs> and her wedding dress was very pretty. But they, in one shot, William Wyler manages to get Wilma and Homer in the foreground. Next to them is Dana Andrews from behind. Across from him is Teresa Wright. You can see they're having a moment together. And then next to them are, um, in the in the background, are Myrna Loy and... I almost said William Powell because I'm so used to saying their names together, and Frederick March. So you have all six of the main characters in one shot 
in a super creative way. You can follow where each of them are at based on, you can't see Dana Andrews' face, but based on Teresa Wright's face, you see where he's at. It's such a cool moment, such an intelligent shot. You didn't need to go close-ups on each of them in that moment. You got it all from this one shot. And I think that's so masterful, such a brilliant way of storytelling. You know what I mean? Although you do end up getting close-ups of Teresa Wright and Dane Andrews because they're about to like say they're in love forever and you need their close-ups because you need to really get that. But even without those moments, it's just a really cool shot. It's like the last shot of all of them together in the film. And I just thought, what a great way of doing that. I thought the wedding was really nicely done. The way that they did it just at somebody's house and it was nice. It felt really old-fashioned, but in a beautiful way. But I feel like there's like so many movies where... People are falling in love, maybe not falling in love, but they might already be in love, but they're like, like upstaging somebody else's wedding. So they just got married and smooched and you're going to go smooch in a corner and expect no one to notice. Excuse me. Why don't you at least like go outside or like go somewhere else? Her parents are right there. And Friedrich March told Frederick March, if you want to get it right. By the way, uh, born Ernest Frederick McIntyre Bickle. Okay. That's a name. Don't know where Frederick March came from. It came from one of the studio heads. They were like, screw that name. Yeah, Frederick March now, yeah. baby. <laughs> I hope they said it just like that, too. I'm pretty sure they did. I think that's how they did it all. But early in the movie, he had told Fred to, you know, stay away from his daughter. I, I don't remember the exact words he used. But wait, can we also establish that he's like, I actually really like you as a person. I do think you should stay away from my daughter because you're married and you don't have a job. But I do want you to know that I like you. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good... You know, not your normal chat. I'm going to say two things about you I don't like, and I'm going to let you know I like you. <laughs> that whole scene was when the um, Homer was playing chopsticks with his uncle, and that was all going on in the background. But what I was thinking actually was more about, okay, at this wedding, now he's going up and he's kissing um, Al's daughter. I was waiting for like a look on uh, Al's face, like I accepted or, you know, something to kind of show like he was okay with it. You know, he's but that, that doesn't happen. They establish, I think a little more through exposition than through anything else. Because Peggy does show us she's cool, but we hear how cool she is from other people too. So that's why we also think she's cool. But they establish that she's a woman that knows her own mind and that she's good. she has a strong moral compass and she's going to do what she thinks is right. So I love the scene, by the way, where she's like, I've decided what I'm going to do about Fred. And her dad's like, good, get rid of him. She's like, I'm going to ruin his marriage. I'm going to be a homewrecker. <laughs> and yeah. You're like, yes, this is interesting. I like this. Mm-hmm. I, actually, <laughs> yeah, I actually did really like that. She, I mean, she had her plan in mind. She knew what she was going to do. Yep. Well, because again, normally this is not the great road to go down. Everything she was saying was the most like stereotypical trope of like, it's different with me. You don't understand. Normally those are red flags, but in this case... It is, in fact, true love. But yeah, I really liked that scene. And I think the end was done so well. Just the language, them speaking to each other with their little eyeballs across the wedding was enough for me. I got it. I do wish they'd had maybe a more private moment that wasn't just in that room in front of everybody. And I do also wish that there was maybe a little more closure. I think the movie is probably better because we don't have it. Like, I think it does end a little abruptly. It is two hours and 46 minutes. So maybe they could have added an extra two minutes of like, Everybody at Butch's or some shit. I don't know. You know, though, they wanted to end it with the big kiss. I I guess that's probably what they were thinking. We'll end it with this nice, big, romantic gesture. Oh, my God. And I just realized, too. So his whole thing was like when they're in the airplane first coming home and um, Al is asking Fred, well, like, what do you want when you go home? And he's like, honestly, I don't want much. I just want a job that pays me well, like decently, you know. 
I want a house and I just like want to be with my wife. Like I want a nice mild life. That's what he says. And I was like, those are all very reasonable things to want. Those That sounds great. And he like cannot have them. <laughs> like it keeps happening where it's just not going to work out for him. But then at the very end, it's like he's in this nice house and he has a job and he's going to marry this girl. So I'm wondering if that's part of it too, where he's kind of got all those things. He's just got them like in Under the Tuscan Sun where it's a little different than he thought. It ended up working out. Can we talk about how the last line is messed up too? This is the last line of this beautiful, optimistic film. We're going to have no money, no decent place to live. We'll have to work and get kicked around. That's the last line of the film. And then she's looking at him like, I don't care. And then they kiss and it's beautiful. But it's that's what's so interesting about this film. That's what's so interesting about this film score. Hugo Friedhofer was the composer and he won an Oscar for this. And I think the score to this is just a gorgeous score. It covers everything. It's wistful. And it also has like a twinge of Americana to it. Um, but then he knows how to... Like during some of the sillier moments, there's like 1940s like horn in there, like like, you know, it's kind of silly and modern, Um, but it's a really gorgeous score. So I wanted to also shout that out, too. But what what I'm trying to say is there's so much sweetness in the film, but there's also a little melancholy. There's always a little bittersweet tied into it, too, because that's that's life. Like it's never just all the way sweet. And I appreciate that about this film. And I think that's such an interesting ending because that's what he's saying. The words he's saying are like very harsh and very realistic, but the moment doesn't feel harsh and realistic. I think it was like his way of saying like, it doesn't matter what our situation is because we love each other. We're going to make it work and it's going to work out. When he was working as the soda jerk and he's making the Sundays, didn't that make you want to go to an old fashioned soda shop and just sit down and get a Sunday or something like that? Oh, totally. Also, he trained to do that in real life. I need you to know this. The first time I saw this movie was actually very magical. I saw it at TCM Fest in 2014, and it was beautiful and wonderful, and I loved it so much. And it was like one of those movies that I left. You know a work is special when you feel different when you leave. You know, when you're moved and you feel just like touched, changed, all of this. I felt that after I saw this. And I remember almost nothing that the opening speaker said. It was not a conversation. It was just like one speaker. But I feel like the speaker did say (laughs) that Dana Andrews really did learn from a soda jerk. He like worked as a soda jerk for a couple days or a day or two or whatever. And he really did learn how to do all that and make the Sundays and all of it. I remember thinking he put that together really well. Like that looks like a really good Sunday. Well, he was smooth about it. Remember when he was like, my soda jerk skills helped up in the sky? I was like, I see it. You're so smooth. He's like tossing it around. Like he was great with it. He was like a bartender that catches the the bottle of booze, but with, you know, ice cream. I'd want a little practice at it before I just went in and, and did it. Well, and William Wyler was very much about like having things be as real as he, they could be. Like he had the actors select their own wardrobe. The actors purchased their own clothes and they used the life-size sets. We talked about that. They filmed this like, I think seven months after the war ends. So everyone's pretty like fresh from the war. This film made a lot of money. Gone with the Wind is like the top grossing film ever of all time. And this was the second. This was a huge financial hit and a huge um, critical hit. It won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Oh, oh, can we get to that scene? Do you want to talk about that scene? The scene with the Nazi? The scene with the Nazi, yes. Thank you for calling him what he is. I really appreciate that. So yeah, we get to this scene, like one of the big turning points for Dana Andrews' character is at this point he has had to like, I guess 
suffer a lot of indignities. <laughs> and I say this, he's still a white man. He still walks around with a hell of a lot of privilege. He came out of the war like having all this hope and optimism and confidence in himself. He was a captain of like the armed forces. And people are casually cruel a lot to him. It's funny because they almost make the civilians like the antagonists. Like the way a lot of the civilians are portrayed are like, these army people are gonna come take our jobs. They are terrible. And it's like, wait, hold on. What if we create more jobs? There are other ways of looking at things. How about that? But he's very adamant that he's not gonna go back to being a soda jerk. We find out he's been looking for months trying to get a job. It's just not working. Not only does he have to go back as a soda jerk, but he's working underneath the guy that used to be his assistant who treats him like scum. And then the customers are just kind of shitty. Nobody's really that great to anybody. And they say things like, who do you think you are? We got all these army people coming in thinking they're somebody and they're nobody. Like there's a lot of lines like that, you know? And so it comes to a head when Homer comes to visit him to find out, honestly, Homer's going to check on him because Homer's very sweet. Homer notices that Al and Fred have maybe had some sort of something. He doesn't know what, but they're not being cool with each other. And he's like, something's up. So he goes to the drugstore to check on Fred to be a good buddy. And a man rudely is like, may I ask you a personal question? And Homer's like, whenever someone says that, I know they're going to ask about my hooks. He's super polite about it, but he, you know, he says that. And so he's talking to Fred, seeing what's going on, ordering his chocolate, whatever, his chocolate shake or his chocolate sundae, I don't know. And the man talking to him is like, wow, that must suck that you lost your hands and it was all for nothing. And Homer's like, what do you mean for nothing? And he's like, it's in this here newspaper. And I'm like, wait, wait, what are you reading? Can I just say, what are you reading? I didn't see the headline. I don't think you're saying accurate words. But he basically says, like, we picked the wrong side. You were fighting on the wrong side. And it's not your fault. You're just a dummy. And Homer's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, no, <laughs> you're crazy. And they kind of get into this fight. Homer rips off the guy's American flag and Homer says something like, if I could punch you, I would. So Dana Andrews being like, yeah, this guy deserves to be punched because he's a fucking Nazi, jumps over his little soda jerk desk and punches the guy in the face. The guy breaks the glass. Whoa, breaking the glass. And when everybody comes, they don't help out Homer and Fred. They help out the asshole. And his American flag pin has fallen on the ground. We both know as Jewish people, we have family that died in the Holocaust. We do. Our relatives died in the Holocaust. Thank God, like, our great-grandma Sarah came to, you know, Ellis Island when she did, because we both know our family that stayed behind were murdered. And that is completely tragic. And so for someone to say that, like, that was not worth fighting for, that democracy was not worth fighting for, that we should be ruled by a dictator who wanted to ethnically cleanse the world, you know, <laughs> to me that has an extra layer of hitting home. What about you? It's 100% does. Um, when I was watching this, I was actually worried the movie was going to go down a different path where Homer was going to listen to this guy and he was going to think, oh, this is the path for me. Like, this guy's telling me this didn't have to happen to me. And he was, he was going to mentally take it down a different path. And I like that Homer didn't take it down that path because I was worried about that when I was watching it. The fact that this guy who is essentially like telling them that I don't think he said the Nazis are right. He didn't. Yeah, they never used the word Nazi. I don't know what the facts were. You know, you just read this. You know, this is what the facts are. And I'm like, what facts are you talking about? He sounds the way that people saying insane things sound today, quite yeah. frankly. There actually was some 
some crazy parallels between now and, and, and this guy in, in particular. The fact that, you know, I was happy that Fred came and, and popped him because he, quite frankly, deserved it. Again, it's always okay to punch a Nazi. It is always okay. I do not condone violence. I think violence solves nothing. But Nazis are monsters. And it's okay to punch them. I'm giving you permission. But you're right. The fact that they, because he's the customer, and as Freddie even said, I know the customer's always right. I'm leaving or something to that effect. But this time the customer was wrong. It was like that had to happen. Fred was never going to quit that job. He was going to be depressed and sad. He needed impetus and motivation. And so once again, so Homer comes along and gets Al out of a rut. And then Homer comes along and gets Fred out of a rut. And he doesn't even mean to. It's just... The reason it's so brilliant that they cast Harold Russell is because he naturally has this innocence about him, like this this really likable innocence. And that's what William Wyler had said about him. He went, my God, he's just so likable. And he carries that essence with him. He has this naivete about him, even though he has seen things and even though he's been hurt, he still does carry this with him. So you're right. There is a moment when the man is like, you should read what's being said. And you think, oh, no, Homer, Homer is really naive. Maybe he'll go for this. So what he does is he rips off the man's American flag pin with his hook and um, he ends up picking it up off the floor and holding it and keeping it. I'm defending this. This is still mine. You know, that man was wrong. I do want to modern lens it a little bit. They were using a word to describe Japanese people that I'm not okay with. So that was like something that very much did not hold up. Um, Also, like when Frederick March goes home and like brings his son gifts, he's like, here's a samurai sword. And here's a very meaningful thing that I stole off of a dead Japanese person. And I was like, ooh, that's not cool. I, what? His family might have wanted that. He's like, look, his family signatures all over it to protect him. Isn't that great? And I'm like, don't you think his family would have wanted that? Why are you, whatever. Didn't approve of that, doesn't hold up. And um, you'd mentioned earlier the way like women are kind of treated in this. The scene with Virginia Mayo's character where Fred like bodily grabs her and is like, you're not going out. And you're like, ooh, chill out there, Fred. But then also just the way women are treated in general in terms of like, if you're married, you can't have a job. You have to be at home with your husband. And then something else that doesn't hold up is like I had mentioned earlier too, they had made um, like antagonists of the civilians, but the very real thing too is that a lot of women had started to get jobs and started to leave the kitchens. And I I think it's really important that more people were working. So the idea of like, you should give everything up for the veterans, that's not quite right either. There's gotta be a compromise in the middle, you know? So that kind of was sticking with me when they're like, the veterans are coming back and taking our jobs. And I'm like, well, you know, they should have a place, but you should too, you also deserve a job. So let's problem solve and come up with solutions together. And then there's something I really do want to talk about. Modern Lens still, like, there are not a lot of people of color in this film. Uh, Sometimes in the background you can see, like, black people in certain, like, serving roles. At least they didn't put, like, a horrible stereotype accent or character on them. They seem to have, like, dignity, but they're still serving. But there's one moment in this film, and I will never forget this. I was at TCM Fest. Picture it. TCM Fest 2014. I've talked about this in the podcast before. Um, I was in line to go see Robin Hood and I started talking with a woman in front of me and she was this like very lovely, very awesome black woman. And we were talking about like classic films and what we'd seen and what we like. And she, I told her I had seen the best years of our lives the night before. And she went, oh my God, that's one of my favorites. I love it. And she said, a lot of directors in the past, if you look, um, they weren't really given the green light to be integrated. So they would find really subtle ways of including like 
integration or positive like black characters, even if it's small, even if it's for a moment, they would do that. And William Wyler does that. And she said, there's a scene in um, The Best Years of Our Lives where it's the first time when Dana Andrews walks into the drugstore after being away and he's just going in to say hi. And in the background, you can see an African-American officer. He is an officer in, I don't know if it's the army or what, but he is an officer. And a white woman is waiting on him. And she's being really friendly and kind to him. And he has two kids that um, are well-dressed and well-behaved. Because as we see later on in the film, there's a really shitty kid that's white that's not behaved. But like the African-American man, he's in an officer's uniform. He has two really well-behaved kids with him that look adorable, that are like not putting on any sort of stereotypical anything. And there's a white woman serving them and kind of like flirting with him and being kind with him and like being in more of a serving position to him. And it's really small. It's a small moment. Like, it's so sad that that's what we have, that I'm like writing home about this. Like, oh my God, can you believe this teeny tiny moment? But just in 1946, the fact that we have something, something small like this that was thought of, that was thoughtfully put in the film is like just the smallest, tiniest bit of hope, of progress. You know what I mean? We talked about it with Frank Capra. Frank Capra would do that. There's a lot of directors, you knew that they were kind of more progressively minded when they were thinking about these things and trying to include them in really small ways of like people of color in different in different ways in their film um, that were not like stereotypical or demeaning to the people of color. Um, so I did want to point that moment out because it was pointed out to me. And it felt very special. I wish I knew her name. It was just like, you met someone in line and we all moved on. But ever since she told me that, that is something I notice in films. So I'm so grateful to her for sharing that with me. And I'm so grateful that I can tell people about it. And I wish to God that there was more. I wish that we had like more positive roles for people of color from the past, but just like that we have more movies with people of color and their stories from the past. And again, that's why the Harold Russell stuff is so important because he's one of the only people on film that I can think of that has a disability that's a main character <laughs> that's treated with dignity. So I wanted to put all that in there. I think that's a, that's a really good thing you just brought up, so. It's a small moment. It's in the background. He's having a conversation with someone. So you notice it when you're looking just beyond. And because of uh, Greg Tolan's deep focus, we get to see it. Thank you, deep focus. Thank you, clear shot in the background and the foreground, adding depth. Before we kind of wrap it all up too and do the double feature, I know I didn't really chat about Myrna Loy, but I just want to shout her out really quick. We talked about her a lot in our The Thin Man episode because she is half of the team that is Nick and Nora Charles. But she is a really great actress, and I don't think she ever gets credit for as good as she is. Like, people kind of discount her. But just, she has so many wonderful moments in this. The way she handles Frederick Marsh, the way she does the same thing he does, how she can handle comedy, but then she can show us her character's inner life when she's seeing her husband for the first time, when they're having their dancing moment. Like, it sucks that her whole life is wrapped up in him and she has no other purpose, but um, I really thought she did a beautiful job, so I wanted to shout her out too. And then just for people who maybe don't know these other characters, Dana Andrews, we talked about, played Fred. You might know him. His other big film is Laura. That's like where I've seen him a lot. He's also in like Fallen Angel, State Fair, Ball of Fire, The Oxbow Incident. Those are some of his other films. He's a big movie star in the 40s and a handsome leading man. Um, Teresa Wright, we had named hers earlier. Uh, Virginia Mayo is in White Heat, The Kid from Brooklyn, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, Hoagie Carmichael, we had mentioned. He's more of a singer, songwriter, composer. He wrote uh, the famous song Stardust. He wrote Georgia on My Mind. And Judy Garland famously chose her name because of a Hoagie Carmichael song called Judy. 
because he was a very popular uh, singer-songwriter of the day. That's a fun fact. Oh, and I also want to say the guy that played uh, Dana Andrews' dad, he was part of the group theater, the famous group theater, Roman Bonin, or maybe it's Roman Bonin. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know. I've already, I've already mispronounced one name today, so why not make it two? We're going to go into the double feature portion of this program. This film I would pair with, um, there's another film that came out this same year called Till the End of Time that also deals with PTSD, but it got overshadowed by this film because it's not like this film is very epic. So Till the End of Time came out this same year. Fun story about Till the End of Time. Picture it. March 17th. The year was 2000. Sarah Greenfield has a half day at school. She comes home. She turns on the TV. She sees a classic movie and says, today I'm trying something different. I'm going to watch a classic movie. That movie that started my whole love of classic films was Till the End of Time. Swear to God. Um, Stars Guy Madison, Robert Mitchum, Dorothy McGuire. I loved it. Now, to be fair, I have not seen it in a very long time. It could be terrible. It might. What if it's racist and I'm recommending it? I don't know. But 13-year-old Sarah very much resonated with this piece. And it also handles different kinds of PTSD as well. So it handles like not fitting in necessarily veterans when they went home, but it also showed PTSD in public. So there's like a scene in a restaurant or a bar where there's a man like who's having tremors, who's kind of having this like PTSD moment in public and doesn't know how to stop it. And, you know, the, the main character goes over and like helps him. And I remember it being a very lovely piece. So check that one out. And then um, Five Came Back, which is the documentary on Netflix about the five directors that um, made documentaries during World War II. Uh, and you see footage of the documentaries that they made. One of them is famous, Memphis Bell. Like, first of all, they made a movie about it, but also like that famous documentary is what they made. And they were in the action. And um, I will give you a warning. I think if I recall, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I do believe there's Holocaust footage in there as well. So it's disturbing and haunting, of course, but um, they interview like Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola and just all of these big directors and about how these men influenced them and about how these men were influenced by World War II. So there's that. Um, I wrote down Saving Private Ryan because that might be good to watch with this in terms of like, this is what people came from. This is what they were seeing and this is how they're coming home. Since there's no like representation of people of color in this film, I wrote down Red Tails, which I actually haven't seen, but have meant to see. It's from 2012. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s in it. It's about the Tuskegee Airmen, the African-American division of Tuskegee Airmen who fought in World War II. So check that one out. And then um, I also wrote down A League of Their Own, <laughs> which I would pair with this one because I just love A League of Their Own, but also because it kind of shows the other side of things, how the civilians handled people being away and how like women were finally given a shot to do certain things that they had never been given a chance to do before. So I would say those would be my double feature recommendations. Those are good recommendations. I do just want to say that, you know, imagine if Till the End of Time was not the first movie you saw. And the first movie that you saw classic movie-wise was awful. You might, you know, not be doing this podcast today. Isn't that bananas? So this whole thing started because of Till the End of Time. I just remember it so specifically because it was St. Patrick's Day. And it was like, we're doing something different today. So this is like my 21st year anniversary with classic films. I mean, I might have found my way in just because the movie musicals were so satisfying to us as children and we watched so many of the classics. But yeah, this was my first like dive into classic films. So yeah, imagine if I hadn't watched Till the End of Time, we wouldn't even be here today. Think about that for a minute. Well, David, it was an absolute pleasure to share this movie with you. Thank you for watching it. Again, people at home, yes, it looks long, but it doesn't feel long. It just trips on by. 
there are moments that are very corny. I'm warning you right now, specifically moments between Homer and his girlfriend, Wilma. They can be a little rough. I get it. Sit with them. It's worth it. I swear to God, it's worth it. I promise you. Remove your cynical hat and put on your Homer hat and be a little bit optimistic. If you have time, check it out. I really did enjoy it. And I remember you telling me like, I know it's long, but it won't feel long. And I didn't really believe you. And then I watched it. And honestly, I couldn't believe it when it ended. I was like, oh, and I looked and I said, that was almost three hours. It didn't feel it. It really didn't. It's so well done. It's like a masterful piece of art is what I think. So it's well done in every aspect, except obviously like with gender roles and people of color, obviously that needs work. But in terms of a film that came out in 1946, it's incredibly well done. Yeah. If you remember the lens you're watching it in, it was pretty ahead of its time. Well, David, thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And we'll, I have to find a better phrase. Do you have something better than we'll see next time? Join us for the next episode of Talk Classic to Me. Does that work? We'll see you next time. Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was David Greenfield. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm and become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content. Thanks for listening.